I am Jennifer Nielsen, and this is Let It Glow, Episode 14, Truth and Justice. Ready, set, glow. Welcome to the Let It Glow podcast, a happy place where you'll learn how to let your soul shine and discover new ways to design your best life. I'm your host, Jennifer Nielsen. Ladies, welcome to another episode of Let It Glow. Today's going to be a little bit different than what I normally do because I've come here without any notes. I usually take a little time to prepare and I have some, you know, some quotes for you or some tips or some more specific things that I'll be going over. And today I'm just going to be a little bit more vulnerable. So just giving you a heads up. I am going to be talking about my experience that has actually been spanning over many, many years, the last seven years, kind of the road that took us to the trial that I have shared with with my uncle. And that just finally came to a head this last week when he was finally convicted of 17 counts of child sexual abuse. So yes, it was a victory, and my heart has been so full of gratitude because we were supported by so many, and I could feel the prayers, I could I could see the divine intervention in all of this. But to be honest, there are no winners. Many people have been affected by this one man, by his poor choices. And really what I want to talk about today is much of what I haven't been able to discuss before now, because we were basically sworn to secrecy about five years ago when we first went to speak with the detective in Gilbert. And so just to back up a little bit, to give you a little background, my sister and I were going to counseling. It's been about seven years ago, and we were actually going to different therapists, and it just kind of worked out that we both started having memories of this abuse around the same time. And prior to that, I had actually talked to my parents when my daughter Hadley was a baby, so I was about 23, 24, that I had suspected that I had been molested by my uncle. And at that point, it was just this, okay, we're eating our chips and salsa, we're at lunch, which didn't happen very often with just my parents and I because there's 10 kids in my family. So for whatever reason, that's the time that I chose to talk to them about this. So I brought it up and... Not much was done, and we just continued to eat our chips and salsa and moved on, and we never discussed it again after that until things became more clear to me, which, like I said, was about seven years ago. And I have to say in all of this, I feel so very blessed that I had my sister that was going through this at the same time because so many times when you've had sexual abuse in your childhood, you become very good at like putting it away, stuffing it. It's not something that you want to bring to the surface. And it has negative effects on you. I mean, it looks so different for so many different people. But often it's when people end up into drugs or alcohol or different types of addictions. And for me, it was a need to be perfect, a level of perfectionism that was unrealistic. And so I ended up going to counseling around that time just because I didn't like the way I was feeling. I didn't feel connected. My relationship with my husband wasn't what I wanted it to be, and I just didn't know how to fix it. And so, sorry, the harder I tried to be perfect, and I'm a member of the the LDS church, and so I 
would try harder to do all the things that I, I was taught to do, whether it was read my scriptures, pray harder, serve more, all of these things that just ended up leaving me exhausted because no matter how much I did of those things, it didn't change the way I felt about myself. So there was this dichotomy between the outer Jennifer and the inner Jennifer. And I was really good at keeping that outer part looking good, happy, productive. And it just got to the point where that was just exhausting. So as I was going to therapy, things started unfolding. And once those floodgates opened, there was nothing I could do to close them again. And so many memories and the experiences that I'd had as a child came to the surface. And at this time, I was actually pregnant with Clover, so it's been almost seven years ago. And it was a very, very difficult time in my life. Um, you know, I'd worked really hard to keep this this part of me, these experiences in my life, stuffed down as, <laughs> as, as much as I could. And once they started coming up, I didn't know quite how to deal with it. And so, again, like I said, I was very blessed to have a sister that was kind of going through the same thing at the same time, because I do think it would have been very easy to either minimize or stuff it back down again. But knowing that she had gone through some of the same things was very validating. And one thing I want to clarify is that in the very beginning of all of this, my sister and I were very careful not to share specifics, not to get into detail with each other, but we both knew the gist of what had happened, that we were sexually abused by my uncle. And the places that it happened and, you know, you know, surface details, but no specifics. And that ended up really helping us later. And I'll explain that to you as I go along on this podcast. So, you know, again, I was pregnant with Clover and it was just like a hard, dark time in my life. And prior to this, I'd been trying to get pregnant with Clover. It'd been a few years. And now looking back in hindsight, I see what a blessing it was that she actually, when she was born, it was during the time when things really started to kind of unfold. And she ended up being just this this blessing in my life to help me pull through this and kind of keep me going, so to speak. So I remember during this time frame, I have a really good friend of mine. We've been friends since I was like nine or 10 years old. And I remember calling her and I was sitting in my car at the post office and she just asked me, Jennifer, what's going on? You're not yourself. I can tell something is wrong. And I just said to her, you know, all these memories are coming up. Um, and I told her a little bit about what had happened, and I didn't tell her who. But immediately she knew exactly who I was talking about. And mind you, I come from a large family. We're you know, very active in our church. We have lots of friends and neighbors and people in my life. So there's there would be would have been many possibilities, and she knew immediately who I was talking about. And she reminded me of conversations that we had had when I was in fifth grade and sixth grade and, and on when I talked about this person and how much I disliked him and how much I hated him and how he creeped me out and how every time we'd go to a family event, he'd make me greet him or hug him or whatever. And it was just... There was always a disdain and just um, a discomfort around this particular family member. And it was actually, like I said, my uncle. And so from that point forward, she's been a very, very huge support for me. So Stacy and I decided that the best thing to do would be to go and talk to this particular um, uncle and his wife. Because in our naive minds, we just assumed 
that we would talk to him, he would say he was sorry, and he it would never happen again. And for us, it had been about three decades. I mean, it had been a long time since this, you know, these events had actually occurred. So we scheduled a meeting with him. We went to their house and we sat in their living room and we talked to my aunt and uncle and explained to them what we had remembered and what had happened. And just to say the least, the meeting did not go as we had planned. He denied it and actually didn't deny it. He said, I don't remember. Hmm. And he said how much he always loved us girls, which was bleh, because there was never love coming from him. So at that point, we just kind of left a little bit like, confused, didn't really know what to do next. But really, our intention was just to bring awareness to make sure that they knew, that we knew, and that to make, you know, to have them handle it. Well, sooner than later, we got a phone call from a church member that was actually one of our, he was, we called a stake president in our church. And it was just a leader that called us in that was actually a family friend. And we sat down with him. And, you know, in his defense, I think he looked at this as, you know, what can we do now? It's been 30 years. Do we know it's happening again? Just what would, you know, really there was no benefit at that point in his mind to doing anything further. And so he basically told us to forgive and forget. So at that point, just being kind of, I don't know, I think it was kind of a relief because basically we were told, okay, you're good, move on, and we didn't have to do anything else, which was basically just kind of like Pontius Pilate, like washing our hands of this. We were done. We did our best. So two years went on from that point, and really nothing really changed. This particular aunt still had music classes in her home. My uncle still went up to the ranch with us. He was still around children. And and I know in that time that other abuse occurred. But what ultimately ended, ended up happening that brought it to a head was I'd felt a very clear prompting that I needed to go speak with another aunt and this particular aunt was the sister to my uncle that abused, had abused me. And we were very close. Um, she was like a second mom to me growing up. And she was someone that I'd always just really looked up to. And she had always been really, really good to me. But to be honest, I felt really bad bugging her because at the time, her husband had just been hit by a car riding his bike. They were in the process of moving. I didn't want to add burden to her life, but I, I just felt so strongly that I needed to go talk to her. And again, it had been two years, so I, it didn't really make sense to me. But I went ahead and I called her and I went and sat in her family room and we had a, you know, I, I, we had the talk and I had told her everything that had happened. And I can't say that she was shocked. She did mention that she'd had a dream about two weeks before that my dad had come to her and he was really upset and frustrated and something about needing to protect the girls or something something was you know that, that something needed to be done and she couldn't figure out what it was and so when i came to her it just seemed to make sense that this is what it was and that we needed to do something so she was very loving very supportive but again nothing really came out of this meeting other than i had her love and her support and there was definitely red flags with my uncle but not in this regards and I'm trying to be careful not to get like too deep into the details and keep this going because I could be here all day and we don't want that. So about two weeks later, my cousin, who's this aunt's daughter, 
actually came to her and had had memories that she'd been sexually abused by this uncle. And I think it just shocked my aunt to the core. And at that moment, she told this particular cousin that she needed to call me and get permission before she shared what she knew about my memories. So she made that phone call and ended up telling my cousin that I too had been abused and so had my sister. And I'm trying not to mention names just to be careful. So I hope this isn't too confusing. But ultimately, what this brought up was that it wasn't just my sister and I, and there were other victims. And ultimately, we realized that we didn't know the scope of this, or if that he was still doing this, or if he'd ever stopped. And so it was at that point that we we actually went to another church leader and the whole thing, I don't even know. I would do things differently if I had to turn back the clock. But it got us where we needed to be. But it was we went to another church leader that then called Salt Lake, and Salt Lake, which would be the LDS church headquarters, ended up calling the Gilbert Police Department. So we ended up getting called in to talk to the to the detective. And I was the first one to go in, but we had to give them approval and like give them an okay that we were willing to do this. And at that point, it was just Amy and I, sorry, my one cousin and I. So we went and I, I, was, I went first and I guess this whole process, what it's taught me is that when you're putting yourself out there like this, it's almost as if we were guilty until proven innocent. And my uncle was innocent until proven guilty. So when I talked to this detective, it was brutal. Ugh, it was horrible. He treated me as if I was making this up and, you know, calling me out on any inconsistencies or anything that, you know, didn't make sense. It was very, very, very uncomfortable. And I guess I had this perspective that I would go in there and he'd be like, great, you're doing, <laughs> you know, you're doing this great act for our community, protecting children, rah, rah, rah. Nope, none of that. It was just hard. So I spoke with him. I shared with him the memories that I had. And again, it just felt like a level that like I was somehow like on trial or being, you know, kind of picked apart. But what I will say in regards to my memories and what happened was this just wasn't child molest. My uncle um, sexually raped me, and it led to some other things where, and a lot of this I didn't really understand until I was in court listening to the other victims of the case, but he had a pattern with all of us that he would suffocate us, strangle, do whatever you want to call it, put pillows over our face, whatever it was, if we weren't cooperating. And um, there were definitely times when we blacked out where it got to a really scary place. And there's more to that that I'll probably share later, but probably not today. So, but I'm trying to find this this fine line of giving you what you need to know so you can understand the gravity of it, but not being too um, exploitative. But it really, you know, going to trial and listening to my you know, my, my sister and my, my cousins, and knowing that really these patterns were so similar with all of us. It was, it was validating, but also very painful because it made it so real. And one thing I didn't mention, the whole process of going and talking to the detective in the first place was probably one of the hardest times in my life. It was devastating. I did not want to press charges. I did not want to go talk to the detective. I didn't want to hurt my aunt. I didn't want to hurt my cousins. I didn't want to be the one that like rocked the boat in her family. 
And I got to the point where I knew I didn't have a choice. Like I couldn't be the judge and jury and know that that he wouldn't do this again. And I wanted to protect my children, my nieces and nephews, any kids that were around him because he was around children all the time. And so just getting to the point where I could had the courage, I remember laying on my floor in the family room, family room one day and I was just in the fetal position, just didn't, I was really having a hard time and Clover was there and I just remember praying, I needed help. I couldn't, I couldn't do this. I didn't want to do this. And as soon as I finished my prayer, my mom walked in <laughs> and she didn't know what was going on. We had a little puppy at the time and the next thing I know, the puppy's running out the front door. Clover's chasing the puppy out the front door. She was about 18 months at the time. And the whole thing just kind of, it, it, got, it pulled me out of that place. But I just remember more than once really struggling and suffering and, and agonizing over doing this because I didn't want to take legal action ever. It was the last thing I wanted to do, the last thing my sister wanted to do. None of us wanted to take this route, but when we knew the gravity of what he had done and that there were more victims than just us and the possibilities, we just, it really didn't, didn't leave me with a choice in my mind. So eventually, I mean, this whole process, and, and I've explained it a little bit, but the detective, his job is to collect all the evidence, all the information. So there ended up being actually four victims on our case. And it took about two years for him to really gather all the information, do all the interviews, do everything he needed to do so that he had a strong case. And I'm so grateful now that he was so thorough and that he wasn't easy on me because I really understand now the importance of having a strong case. And there are false accusations out there. There are people that are wrongly accused of things. And you know, another time I will talk about that, that's something else that we've dealt with in our family. So I've had a full circle in all the, the legal system and, you know, all different angles of abuse. But so at that point, he took it to the Maricopa County's attorney off, attorney's office, and then it ended up at the grand jury where they eventually ended up deciding to press charges. Now I'm moving th- through this pretty quickly. And as time goes along, I'll continue to share what I feel like I need to share. But I'm just trying to give you an overview of kind of how we got to the point because it you know, this this whole process has just been a long, long road. And that process from when I started, when I first went to the detective until when he um, actually, we went to trial, was almost five years. And from the time that we, you know, talked to the detective till when he was actually arrested was about three years later. So this is just, it takes a long time. And the irony of all this is that we had found out on Monday that he was going to be um, charged, which meant he'd be arrested that week. And that was like February 11th, I believe. And then he ended up getting arrested on February 15th from the Mesa Police Department. And we were so confused by this because it was the Gilbert Police Department that we had pressed charges out of that we talked to the detective. And so what we ended up finding out, and again, I'm not going to go too deep into the details of it, but he was actually arrested because he'd been going to Mesa and soliciting a homeless man to find him children. And I will leave it at that. But it just hits the point that we needed to stop him and that he hadn't stopped and that he was still a threat to children. And so when that happened, I remember the night I was at the movies with my husband and I got this message that he'd been arrested. And I remember just leaving the theater and just 
just crying. And it's kind of the same feeling I had when he was finally convicted of all 17 counts that I didn't want anyone to suffer. And as horrible as he was to us, I didn't want to inflict suffering on him. I didn't want to inflict suffering on my family, on his family. And so I just remember just, again, there's this level of finally something's happened, but I didn't feel that rejoicing, joyous feeling that I thought I would have when he finally got arrested. Because remember, it's been years since we first went to the detective's office. But at that point, he ended up in the Maricopa County Jail, and that's where he stayed until we went to trial, which was supposed to happen in September, but that it, it didn't, it got delayed. Some shady things went on on his, on the defense, and it ended up pushing it now to January. And as I'm sitting here, I'm just really trying to decide what is the most helpful thing to share with you, because really the, the, the design and the purpose that I'm sharing any of this is to create awareness for two purposes. Number one, to help protect the children that are in our lives right now. That's the number one most important reason why we press charges. The only reason we press charges was that he, so he couldn't hurt anyone else. But also the reason I'm so vocal about this and my purpose is to help those who've been victims of sexual abuse or any kind of abuse to understand and know that there is hope and healing regardless of what you've been through and that this doesn't define you. And I remember one of my cousins said after her, he was um, convicted that that doesn't define her, define her, but standing up in court, doing the right thing, being courageous and brave defines her. And I will tell you that for all of us involved, this was a very difficult thing to go and share that the, the deepest, darkest details of our lives, talking about things that I'm not comfortable talking about with my husband in front of you know 14 jurors, a judge, our attorneys, the detective. It was just a daunting experience. But what I what I really gained from all of this is that throughout our lives, I feel like the joy and the happiness, the sadness, the the pain, the evil, the goodness, all of these different things are just intermingled in our life. And throughout all of this, there was a time when I felt like the negativity, the darkness of all this almost took over. It almost took me out. I was at the point where I didn't know if I could get through all of this. But I remember just standing the first day that they read off all the charges, all 17 counts against him, looking at our attorneys, who we ended up with the two most remarkable attorneys. It was a man and a woman, and they worked tirelessly for us and were so sharp and invested and compassionate. And our detective who worked for two years to make sure that we had a strong case, and he believed in us. And I'm telling you, I did not make it easy for him. And our judge, who I felt like was an honorable man. Then I looked at these 14 jurors, and I was able to go through the whole process of selecting the jury. I watched as they started out with about 70 people, and they whittled it down and whittled it down, and they finally got down to 26 people. And then each Side the defense and the prosecution gets to check people off or strike people from being jurors. And then you get to your final number, 14. And so one of my biggest prayers is that we would have a good jury, an honest jury. And I'm telling you what, it we had a special group of people. And in the end, they were able to see the truth. And this 
you know, went on for two weeks where there was, you know, we all testified. You know, we had special witnesses in, expertise, forensic nurses, and not one person or testified on behalf of my uncle other than their paid expert. And on his side of the court, there was nobody there supporting him. And in the end, I just think about, you know, as I was sitting there one day and I was thinking about, you know, we often talk about, does one person make a difference? And I looked at this man and this, you know, coming to the end of his life, he's, I think, 70 now. And I know that, that there, you know, I can't say that he has no support, but the level of support that he had at this stage in his life. And then I started thinking about my own dad when he passed away in his later years and how it, it overflowed into different buildings to accommodate all the people that were coming to honor him because he led such a good life and he touched so many people in such a positive way. And it just reinforced my desire to live a life that I will touch people, that I will leave a legacy of love, of positivity, and that really one person can make a difference for ill or for good. And in my uncle's case, it was not for good. And just to kind of go backwards a little bit, um, we're a very close, tight-knit family. I've, I mean, I, my, both of my aunts, the one that was married to my uncle that abused me and my other aunt, and all of my aunts, we were all very close. And they were like second moms to me. We spent a lot of time at both of their houses growing up. Because my mom had 10 kids, it was busy and chaotic. And so our family spent a lot of time together. I remember going back just even recently and reading my journal, and I, I, it was just this funny little journal I talked about. Today I went to dance, and I had a birthday party. And he came, this uncle came to my birthday parties, my baptisms, my dance recitals, every family party, every holiday. We were up at the ranch together. This isn't just your typical extended family connection. We were deeply involved with each other's lives. And I was raised in a culture where you look for the good, you focus on the positive, and you don't freaking complain. You just don't do it. I remember as a little girl, I had horrible ulcers. And on occasion, that would probably, if I were to complain, that's what it would be about. But I I didn't complain about upsets or things that were bothering me or if someone was being mean to me. It just wasn't the way the culture of my family or my extended family was. And I mean, I even remember as a little girl, it was Mother's Day and my mom was having a hard time and remember her leaving and just, you know, I'm not coming back. You guys are awful. And we probably were being awful. Who knows? But just thinking to myself, oh my gosh, I'm not going to see my mom again. She's leaving. And I just remember looking out the window, like watching her drive away and thinking, oh, sh- I should have been better. I should have been good. I should have kept the other kids in line and just feeling that sense of responsibility. And I do remember one time expressing concern and sadness around this to my dad. And it was, his response was quick, Jennifer, she's doing the best she can do, focus on the good. And that was the end of that. And we didn't discuss it any further. So there really wasn't a space to talk about things that were uncomfortable. And I mean, even when it was time to go to music class at my aunt's house where my uncle lived, I would hide in the playroom because I don't want to go and I would, my stomach would hurt. I just had this like, every time I'd be going to these family events, my stomach would hurt. I'd get terrible, you know, like I said, I had my ulcers. 
I mean, there was just all these, I was just had this angst, but I was never able to discuss it, to talk about it. So the easiest and best thing to do was to stuff it. We had a specialist that flew in from Harvard, and he explained it in a really, really interesting way. He says, if you have a child that goes into the forest and a lion jumps out at them, they're scared, they remember it, they run away, they know that it's danger. But if that a different child who is around that lion all the time and is used to that lion and they know that that lion has authority over them, they don't get scared when they see that lion. They get used to the lion. And I, th- I think that kind of explained why it took so long for us to get to the point where we could come forward because we learned at a young age that there really wasn't a place or we didn't think that there was to talk about this. And just to be clear, I had loving parents. I have loving aunts and uncles other than the not-to-be-spoken uncle. <laughs> this was a loving family But because of our culture, we set up a place where it was pretty much Disneyland for a pedophile because we'd be at the ranch and the men would be out working on the fences, riding horses. You know, there was projects all the time. And this particular uncle never left. And he ended up in the celestial room, which is a horrible name. I'm hoping that we change it after all this is over. But it was the nicest room at the ranch. It had its own bathroom. It was right off the front, you know, the porch, kind of a covered porch that connected to the other part of the house. And right outside his door was, you know, the toys, the blocks that the kids played with. And there was, you know, multiple entrances out of this particular room. I shouldn't say multiple. There was two. It connected to the bathroom that went out to one hall, and then it connected to the porch, and that was another way to to come and go in that bedroom. And so when this first came up, it was very clear to me that really one of my most traumatic memories, and I have bits and pieces of what had happened, because I always had fear and anxiety around this this particular experience at the ranch, because I was a really good girl. Like My nickname, or I don't know if that was a nickname, but for whatever reason, I felt like I was the sunshine girl. That's what I was told. And I worked very hard to be that person and to be happy and to not cause troubles and to make things easier on the adults and on those around me. It was just, I wanted to be good. And keep in mind, I was around the age of four till about eight was the time frame that I was abused. And one thing that's been really difficult for me is that I, on one hand, had this idyllic childhood. We had this beautiful ranch. I had all this support, all these cousins all these different opportunities. But on the other hand, I was living in hell. So going back and trying to sort through that is is really hard thing to do. It just feels like so many of my memories as a child are now tainted. And even looking at pictures of myself as a little girl, knowing what I was going through at that time, it's very painful. Because I have so many wonderful memories. My cousin Eric, he was 10 days older than me. We had the best time at the ranch building forts and riding quads and collecting crawdads. And, you know, I had countless cousins. But the reality is, with all that, there was so much pain. And it's really hard to reconcile that. My grandma Barney, some of my most special memories were with her at the ranch. Or I'd have opportunities for one-on-one time with her. I I grew up in a very large family, so those one-on-one times were few and far between. 
And so just looking back, it's I'm just trying to hold on to those positive, happy memories, but it, it's hard. And I remember one time in particular where I do remember something that made me very uncomfortable, that I knew something was off about the situation. And I remember being at the ranch, and this particular uncle had on these silly jeans that had like poker chips and and it was just like dice, and we were making fun of him, which I never had done before. And somewhere or the other, we ended up kind of down the hill, across from the ranch, up the creek, on this little little hill by the ranch. And I remember him coming to all of us and cussing at us, yelling at us, don't make fun of me, who do you think you are? And this wasn't something that happened to me very often. It was very, very traumatic for me to be yelled at and to be treated that way, and there was no other adults around. And I just remember, for you know, since I was a little girl, I could remember this. And he even pointed out to me, even you, Miss Perfect, Jennifer Barney, and he was angry at me. And it was that event that I then connected to later that I ended up in the celestial room at the ranch alone with this uncle. And um, I remember the details, and I'm not going to share that with you, but I will tell you that there, there was this belt buckle, and I always knew when I heard the sound of the belt buckle what was going to happen, and it wasn't good. And what he did to, to us, to me at that moment, and to the other victims was the worst possible thing that could happen to a child or to anybody. And... That wasn't the only time. But that particular memory, I it was when I remember him putting his hands and pressing on my face and on my neck, and I remember just blacking out and leaving my body. And called a near-death experience, called an out-of-body experience, but I left my body, and it was, I still remember that so clearly. And feeling like I had that choice whether I wanted to come back or not. But I did come back, and I felt like that there was a reason and a purpose that this wrong needed needed to be made right at some point. And in the beginning, it started with me that got the ball rolling, that led us to the point where all of us could come together as victims and stand up to this uncle. And I'm so grateful for those other brave members of my family that were willing to do this because it's been so hard. So many in our family didn't know how to comprehend this, to, to wrap their brain around the possibility of this. And it, it definitely created a ripple in our family. And we're always very close. And even now, to be honest, things aren't the same. And that, I think, is why, you know, going back to that time in the family room that I was so heartbroken and just devastated because I knew that once I went in and talked to that detective, that things would never be the same. But what I cared more about than anything else was protecting children. And that's what gave me the courage to move forward. Even though I wanted to be swallowed up and disappear, I did not want to go forward with this. But as I look at this, this, you know, the trial that's been going on the last few weeks, and I've seen so many tender mercies, like I said, we had the kindest, kindest people working on our behalf, tirelessly 
so diligent, who were so invested in finding justice for us. And I kind of got to, to a place where, you know, our, our original motivation was to protect children. But at the end of the day, this happened to me, this happened to my sister, this happened to my cousin, and there's other victims. And there was still justice that needed to be served for us. And there was validation in having 12 jurors listen to our experiences. And it was very difficult to have to talk about these things in front of absolute strangers. But to know after they had listened to everything, and my uncle ended up getting on the stand and testifying, and it, it, didn't, it didn't work out so well for him. One of the jurors ended up saying afterwards that he tightened his own noose around his neck because he just got caught in one lie, one contradiction after another. But they ended up finding him guilty on all 17 counts. And I just remember sitting in the courtroom and my stomach was a knot. I was physically ill. I had a sense of peace that it was going to be okay. I mean, we had gotten this far. I mean, to even get it to the point that where the grand jury was going to, you know, press charges. And every step of the way, I felt like it was a victory and another victory and another victory. But ultimately, to have that be the outcome, that be the verdict, we couldn't have asked for a better outcome. Complete and utter validation. But again... The next day after kind of the dust settled and I really just stopped and worked through all of this, the gravity of it and the pain of it was that people were hurt. I was hurt. There's people that are still working through the byproducts of their sexual abuse. And this isn't just a one-stop, quick-fix process. I went to counseling for years very painful, very difficult counseling, trying to work through this because I wasn't satisfied with being disconnected, with being unhappy, with not having peace, with living with that feeling of self-loathing. And that was one thing that the specialist, he's a counselor for Harvard, and he works with trauma victims. He said, the universal connection with all sexual abuse victims is shame and guilt. And there's so many, like I said earlier in the podcast, there's different ways that this this presents itself for different victims. It's not the same for anyone, not with physical effects, not with emotional effects, but that is the one universal thing is that there is shame and guilt attached to these events. And I remember looking back to, you know, the, the times when the, the abuse occurred, and I have about 30 or 40 fragmented memories. I have three or four that are like very clear from start to finish. But there was shame and guilt attached to all of it. And and several of the times I'd actually gotten in trouble. And so in my mind as a little girl, I just assumed that it was my fault because if I wouldn't have made fun of his hideous genes, then this wouldn't be happening. So of course it was my fault. And also you take in the fact that he threatened us, that if we told, he would kill us, he would kill our parents. He knew what to do to keep us quiet. And we had the perfect family dynamic to keep that going. And it went on for a very, very, very long time. 
So just to kind of bring this to a close, I, I think the outcome of this is that there is hope. And that's really what I'm constantly trying to share with everything that I do, because I've seen the darkness of dark in this world. I've seen the most evil of men, the most horrific types of things that you can imagine I've lived through, and I'm here. And it wasn't an easy path. It wasn't an easy process. I, it wasn't, and it still isn't. There's still days that I have to pick myself up and work through things and just keep moving forward. But my desire and my pursuit for happiness is something that drives me every day. It is, it is my purpose to help find joy in my life, but more importantly, to help others find joy in their lives. And whatever that pain point is for you, it's going to be different for all of us. Pain, heartache, and trials come in all shapes and sizes. And we will all experience that in our lives. That is part of the human experience. No one gets a pass. So no matter what it is that you're dealing with, I would guess that you've experienced pain and agony and suffering. But in all of that, no matter what's going on, I promise, even in the midst of that, there are blessings in your life. There are things to be grateful for. There's a reason to live. And not to contradict myself, but I do remember there were times when even when my, my sweet brother said, well, Jennifer, just focus on all the blessings in your life. And I would just get so frustrated because I wanted to enjoy the blessings in my life. I just didn't know how. Because there was so much pain that seemed to block and overshadow all of that. So I would urge you to do whatever you need to do, whether it's getting therapy. Whatever it is that that will get you to that place where you can enjoy the goodness in your life. Because it's there. That, That is the reality. There's always going to be good. And there's always going to be hard. There's always going to be evil in the world. That is just the design. But if you can focus and keep your eye on the long-term, the happiness, that light at the end of the tunnel, whatever you want to call it, it's there. And don't give up because there were times that I felt like it was too much. And I will say that my little Miss Clover, who came at a very, very perfect time in my life, was that reason that caught me out of bed, that kept me going because... She needed me, and she was such a bright light in my life. And it was just a testament to me that we're not forgotten, that there's always compensation for the hard things in our life, and that no matter how hard it is, there was always good to be had, and there's always joy to be found. So I would just end today's podcast with that message that seek the light in your life, but don't be afraid of the darkness. Get comfortable with whatever it is that has been difficult in your life. I know that sounds a little insensitive because there's things that are very hard to get comfortable with. I didn't, I'm still not necessarily comfortable with what happened to me, but I can live with it and it doesn't define me and it won't define me. And it's not a reflection of me. And I would just say that whatever you're dealing with, I don't know what difficulties you're facing, but just know that you are not defined by your darkest hour. Don't wait for the absence of darkness or trials to fill light and joy because you'll be robbing yourself of the good stuff right now. The human experience is a sticky business, 
But if we choose to focus and work towards happiness and light, we will find it. And I just wanted to thank you today for tuning in and for allowing me to be a little more vulnerable than usual. And really just remember, life is good. There is beauty all around us. There is magic waiting to happen in your lives. Do your best to not let the darkness weigh you down. I love this quote by Martin Luther King Jr. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. So just remember, choose love and choose light in your life. And until next time, shine on. Thanks for listening to the Let It Glow podcast. If you enjoyed this show, share the love with a friend. This podcast can be found on iTunes or subscribe on my website at www.let-it-glow.com. And remember, let go and let it glow.